We're working through why things go wrong and how to put them right. This is the last week on this section, determining right from wrong when it's not mentioned in the Bible. And I'm thinking now about choices. Um, Problems that come about as a direct result of foolish, sinful, mistaken choices that we make. And, of course, once you start talking about the choices we make, you start to think of how do we make right choices. Well, we make right choices when we have guidance and information and the input of truth into our lives. And when you think of that, you think of God's Word. All of which immediately raises the question, well, what about things that just aren't, aren't covered? We aren't left without guidelines to uh, culturally specific moral issues. The Bible, God's Word, God's inspired Word was written in a culturally specific situation, a specific time in human history. And so you will go to your concordance. You won't find any verses on computers, videos, most forms of recreation, entertainment, and so on. But there are principles. There are guidelines. That's what we're looking at now. Principles for determining right from wrong. There are principles there that will help me do the right thing if I desire to do the right thing. If I honestly want to find out what the right choice is. Of course, neither God's word nor anything else is going to be of help to the person who truly doesn't want to know the truth. And if I won't take the time to, we've gone through 12 or so principles, and and if I don't take the time to look at those principles, to find out what the principles are, or if I think somehow that my ignorance of those principles will serve as an excuse, then I'm likely to rush into all sorts of choices that are contrary to biblical guidance. And the real tragedy of those situations would be not only that sin and bondage continue to grow, but self-deception sets into the soul of the one who, uh, just because he can't find his sinful choice spelled out in the Bible, thinks he's still walking in the light, or somehow God won't hold us accountable for our actions. One other thing, all of these principles, all of these principles are freedom principles. Pastor Don, why would you go digging around for more principles? I mean, if something isn't talked about in the Scripture, why don't you just leave it alone? Um, We'll just go by conscience, live and let live. Like, why would you be prying and studying, trying to find more principles to guide our actions in biblical admonition? Well, here's why. Here's why. This is a conviction that you need to form in your life, and either it's there or it's not. If it isn't there, uh, you're going to have a hard time in your Christian walk. And the conviction is this, that nothing God, God commands, nothing God warns about, nothing God forbids, nothing that God exhorts us to do is ever designed to take anything away from life. The person that sits and hears warnings from the scriptures and thinks that what's happening there is God is taking away freedom and happiness and joy is missing it, is missing it badly. That everything that's forbidden is forbidden in the same sense that you forbid your three-year-old to play with the hot elements on the stove. You're not taking away anything from the child's life. Although you might imagine a situation where the child wants to touch the stove. You hold the child back. The child could scream and cry. Why are you holding me back? I want. 
and see that's us. <laughs> what do you mean marriage has to be like this? What do you mean I have to live like this? What do you mean so-and-so, such-and-such? You're, you know, don't fence me in. God's ways only seem confining before you start walking in them. Did everybody get that? You could go home tonight. You can't, but I mean you could. And that would be enough. God's ways only seem confining before you start walking in them. When you start obeying the Lord, even in areas that you thought would be restrictive to your freedom and your joy and your fulfillment, you find out what James meant when he calls it this, the law that gives freedom. You find life opening up, never closing in. People on the outside who don't understand Jesus and his love and his grace and his presence and his kingdom, how it unfolds, people on the outside look and all they see is, oh, you don't do this and this and that and that, and they think, they think. But that's because they're on the outside looking in. They're on the outside looking in. Once you start... Once you start walking in his ways and principles that will help do that, even in areas that aren't specifically dealt with, principles that will help you walk in obedience to God's ways, once you start, you will find, you will find life and liberty and joy that in your selfish mind you once thought was restrictive but come to realize it's, it's more precious than gold. It's more precious than gold. All right, let's continue. The principle of preference. Just a couple I'm going to look at tonight. The principle of preference. Am I putting others ahead of myself in this action? Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection or sisterly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The last part of that verse explains the first part. Love one another with brotherly affection. Well, that's good. That's beautiful. Everybody likes that idea. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. I think it's great to love one another. How do I know if I'm devoted to my fellow believers, brothers and sisters, in love? How do I know? That's the issue of the text. And here's how you and I can tell if we are truly like Jesus in the way we love others. The issue is when I do Something, when I can do something that is pleasing to me but won't fit in with the plans and ideas of others, do I put their considerations above my own? That is called giving preference in the scriptures. It takes great wisdom. It sounds simple. It takes wisdom born of prayer and study and maturity to know how to apply that principle. It's not simple to always apply it. There are all sorts of situations where I can do what I want to do and I don't have to worry about giving preference because no one else really cares about the decision I'm going to make. And in those situations, as long as it's not something contrary to principles of Scripture, whether I wore a red shirt tonight or a green shirt, on the whole, the principle of giving preference probably won't apply. As long as I'm not violating some scriptural command or my own conscience, I'm free in those decisions. 
There are also cases where it's very clear that my actions are strongly at odds with the desires of someone I love. In those obvious cases, cases, the decision is also clear. As a follower of Jesus, I give preference. This would apply specifically in a marriage situation. That's just an example. I give preference to others regardless of my own feelings. So situations where it doesn't matter, no one cares, I'm not doing anything wrong, what color shirt, it's easy. Situations where it's just obvious, there's something I want to do and someone has expressed they're really going to be hurt, it's also easy to give preference, or at least to know how to give preference. But there are difficult situations. There are situations that are more subtle. Take the marriage situation that I just mentioned. Take a situation where a wife thinks that her husband isn't spending enough time with her. Doesn't say anything. But if he was really mature and he was attentive, he would he would recognize that she resents or is hurt by the fact that, you know, he was busy, maybe had to be out every night the previous week, and while she didn't say anything, it pained her that the first night he did have free, he decided to go to the hockey game instead of taking her out for dinner. That's where this principle of loving with honor and preference, that's where, that's where it takes a, a sensitivity, a maturity, an alertness to the heart of others. And, and, and make no mistake, I'm not growing in love, not biblical love, until I'm learning to, in honor, prefer others above myself. There are so many situations in the body of Christ, very practical situations. Um, take this off the shelf of something you know, big, majestic, and spiritual, and bring this principle right down into the body life of the average church, and you will solve 90% of the problems in that church. Where I say, you know what, and this isn't the case, by the way, I'm just, I'm just pretending here. You know what? Um, I prefer, I prefer if we had a, a pipe organ and just sang old hymns. Why? Why do we have to have these? These uh, again? This isn't me, right? I'm just. Why do we have to have these worldly guitars and drums and loud music? Okay. The principle of preference is. You know what? I'm sitting here, and it's loud for me. And it's not my taste, but I look over there, and there's 25 or 30 people in their late 20s just enjoying the presence of the Lord with their hands raised and glorifying Jesus. And if I have a brain in my head, in honor preferring Jesus, not my style, oh, but I'm sure glad you're reaching those hearts. Do you get what I'm saying? Or vice versa. That song, come on, that's from the 70s for crying out loud. Like, 
Eileen likes it. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? Isn't it wonderful that she's getting so blessed by this? This all has to get really practical. And when the men are just boiling hot and the women are freezing cold, I don't put the ceiling fans on in my Christian ed class anymore. I get a tiny little fan and it helps me to cool off, but I don't have to make it so everybody else. Just preferring other people's tastes. And if everybody does that, you know what it does? I'm not talking about going to heaven now, but what it does do is it, it takes all the bumps out of the road. It just smooths stuff out. There's the principle of preference. All right, took too long. Number two, the principles of peace. Will this activity promote or will it diminish the priority of peace with others? Romans 12, 18 is a marvelous verse. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And aren't you thankful for the realism in Holy Scripture? It simply won't always be possible to live with peace, not with everyone, and the Bible recognizes it. The words are, if possible, as far as it depends on you. I get that all the time. Pastor Don, I... We had this thing with someone. I've tried to make things right. They won't have it. And I just feel so guilty. You don't have to feel guilty. As long as you've honestly done all you can do. You can't change people's hearts. But as much as you can do. Sometimes it's impossible to be at peace with people. Sometimes we have to break peace with people on the grounds of Christian conviction. Peace is never to be maintained on the foundation of compromise. Paul's very clear on that point. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13. Here's where you can't have peace, at least for a season. 1 Corinthians 5, 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. This is a person who claims to be a Christian. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Okay, he's, he's not giving you an exhaustive list. Here's a professing Christian just living um, unrepentantly in flat-out rebellion and sinful behavior. Paul says, don't even eat with someone. Really? But, you know, maybe I, could, maybe I could turn his heart around. Maybe I could change his life. That, Paul, that seems, that seems a little tough. Doesn't sound very loving. This is the same guy, by the way, who said, as much as possible, live at peace with everybody. Then he continues, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? He's not talking about people outside the church now. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? What's the answer to that question? It's a rhetorical question. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And what's the answer to the question? The answer is a yes. Yes. Whenever somebody just comes up to you and rips that verse out of contrast, Jesus says, judge not that you not be judged. It's true. As long as you get the whole context of what Jesus is saying, later on he's going to say judge with righteous judgment. Here he's talking about recognizing someone that's flagrantly disobeying God's word, living in sin. Judge that. He says, and he says, don't don't you dare go to Tim Hortons with that person. 
This is a clear example of a situation where a peaceful situation could be maintained with someone who is wicked and stubborn and immoral. You could maintain a peaceful situation. You could be a peacemaker. But Paul says, no, no, we're not to keep peace in that situation. The peace isn't worth the risk of deepening my brother's commitment to sin. That's the important sentence. The peacekeeping isn't worth the risk of deepening my brother's commitment to sin. But those situations are rare. They're rare. Most of the time we break peace over personal preference rather than biblical conviction. Most of the time. Paul says that's wrong. My preferences, my goals, my likes, my dislikes are never to be so important to me that I will treat people as expendable in order to fulfill them. Jesus takes it further. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Paul says, as much as possible, live at peace with everyone. Peacemaking. Peacemaking. That's a principle. It's a governing principle. Unless there's moral compromise involved, unless you're just going to deepen someone's commitment to sin, make peace. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. We, we demonstrate our divine genetic makeup, the new nature, in making peace. Sometimes you can't, but as much as possible. Keeping peace is hard enough. But Jesus isn't talking about keeping peace. You keep peace between friends. Jesus is talking about making peace, creating it. And you make peace with enemies. When someone else is clearly guilty in some wrong that's done to me... It's easy just to quietly let them stew in their own juices. When we see others who are at strife with one another, it's easy not to get involved. And neither of those responses is an option if we're to follow this principle, this principle from Paul and this command of Jesus, peacemaking. Ignoring is not peacemaking. You know how it goes. You've got someone in the church and, and, and there's been tension over something that was said somewhere long ago and you're not fighting. You just don't talk to them anymore. That's not peacemaking though. That's not peacemaking. That's ignoring. Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all. Pay any price for peace except compromise. Pay any price for peace. The laying down of your rights is usually the price. Except compromise. When you are considering any action, you haven't considered it fully from a biblical perspective until you've considered its effect on the relationships with others in the body of Christ. Three, and we'll be done in a minute. The principle of the yoke. Remember what I said at the beginning, okay? None of these principles covers everything. You have to take all the principles together. 
And the question is, will this activity link me with unbelievers in a way that will limit my freedom to follow Jesus as Lord in all things? 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, that verse is in your notes, right? Is the next reference in your notes, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11? I want you to see these two passages because they sound like they're the same, but they're not quite the same. So 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. We, we, We looked at that text. I read it tonight. Not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of this world. If the rule is you can't just associate with anybody ever who isn't immoral, or greedy, or idolatrous, he says you'd have to live on Mars. Like, nobody can live life like that. That's what Paul is saying. That's not what I'm talking about. But now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, okay, a Christian. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, non-Christians. 1 Corinthians 5.11, but now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, an idolater, reviler, drunker, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So the 2 Corinthians passage It forbids associations that link. That would be like a yoke. You have two oxen. A wooden yoke goes over the shoulder of each. And the idea of that is you get a straight furrow or a straight drive down the road because one can't go without the other. They have to move. They're in sync as much as a yoke can make them in that era. So... That's forbidden, that, that link with unbelievers that makes me a partner in actions and decisions that are contrary to what Christ's will might be for me. There are unions. I mean, marriage is just an example. It's not the only one, but it's an example that, that bind up my life with, with the worldview, the values, the choices of another person. And if that person isn't a believer, then I'm bound to that person in a way that restricts my freedom to follow Christ. Okay? Don't put yourself in that kind of situation. It can be a business association. The first Corinthians passage deals, first of all, with associations, associations with unbelievers rather than yokes. Paul says, I recognize you'd have to live on Mars not to be with these people. And Paul explains to the Corinthian church that the pursuit of holiness doesn't mean we remove ourselves from contact with the lost. First of all, because it's virtually impossible in this world, and secondly, because who's going to reach them? Associations are essential. Yoking is forbidden. Those are two totally different things. Love for the lost not a compromise in following Christ. That, that needs to be... That's another one of those principles. These aren't light, breezy, little 
snappy principles. These are principles that you, you spend an hour or two on your knees praying about. I can't, I can't tell you how to apply all these principles to your life. But you need to ask questions. At what point, at what point do I need to say no to a promotion at work? The, the ladder not only gets higher, but it gets narrower. Commitments change. Climbing the ladder can be heady stuff. The promotions come, the salary jumps, the perks increase. But at what point do I lose my capacity to regularly go to church on Sunday? Do you think about that? Does it enter in? At what point have I lost the freedom to choose to be the husband God requires me to be? That's what the principle of yoking is all about and how it can take away freedom to follow Christ. Associations that reach the lost are an essential part of the Christian walk. Yoking that links me up with others who will remove the freedom to follow Jesus in the way I know he demands, that's a different thing entirely. Principle of conformity. Will this activity engage my life in patterns that even though not specifically mentioned in the Bible, will incline my heart in the direction of future sins? Incline my heart in the direction of future sins. I want to talk about this as, as, as we uh, wrap up tonight. Romans 12, 1 and 2, these are such important verses, it's a shame we all know them. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed, if I were underlining, there, I'd circle that word, conformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be, and here's the other one, transformed. Conformed to the world, transformed in the mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Isn't it interesting? That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Principles. Principles that help us determine right from wrong. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what we want to know. So the subject here is my whole life as an instrument of worship unto the Lord. So worship isn't just songs of praise, that's included, but it's the offering up of every moment of every day in a way that is as intentionally devoted to God as those sacrifices were in the temple of the Old Testament. That's why he calls it worship. Confirmation to the world, transformation into holiness. Those are the key ideas. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And both, both confirmation and transformation are processes. By that I mean they are made up of smaller parts. They aren't a seamless thread. They are links in a chain. 
both confirmation to the world, transformation into Christ-likeness, both of those things are processes that happen over time and that are made up of a whole bunch of smaller parts, smaller choices, smaller decisions that are almost unrecognizable when you make them. But you end up with a whole package when you're done with them. So I'm being offered these two options. First, the pressure to conform to this world. Second, the the wooing to transformation by God's Spirit through His Word, fellowship in the body of Christ, prayer, conscience. Both battles start in the mind, and I cast some kind of deciding vote. So I want to learn how to make good decisions. And there are going to be choices that come that I can't find specifically discussed in the Scripture. That's what we're looking at. What do I do? Well, I would suggest that the first thing you do is you hold up those, those two processes. Confirmation formed into the patterns of the world. Transformation. And I would say to myself that you and I are shaped into sin long before we actually commit sin. If I'm to be transformed in my mind, I must learn to detect and target and relentlessly renounce ideas, values, concepts that while not producing any sin in my life immediately will start my life in the direction of an environment where future sin is going to be more likely. And that means, think about this when you make your choices. It means I must start resisting sin while it still looks harmless. You have to start resisting sin while it still looks harmless. In the small stages... Because if you don't resist it there, it already starts to shape your life and you're just less likely to resist it farther down the road because it's a process confirmation. It's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not like you see those things, the, the magician who has, who has the gorilla and puts the gorilla in the closet and pulls the curtain over the front and goes poof and opens it up and there's the beautiful girl inside. That's not, con- that, that's not how we're conformed to this world. It's, it's a process of gradual little things that you don't feel happening. So, when I'm faced with a choice, here's, here's the questions I need to ask. The question isn't, can I do this and still go to heaven? Can I do this and, and not be disobeying some commandment in Scripture? Those are fair enough questions, but they're not the big question to ask. The big question to ask in a, in a situation that can be morally confusing and you're not sure, you can't find where it's dealt with, the big question to ask is, what, what direction does this take me? What associations is this forming in my life? This isn't just for young people. This is for all of us. What associations are being formed here? 
What tastes and appetites are being developed, even if not caved into yet at this point? Will this action, in terms of a long-range direction, will it make holiness easier in the future, or will it make compromise easier in the future? See, that's the way mature people have to start thinking. We simply must see our lives as being shaped by everything we do. Don't just look at the immediate choice. Look at the consequences of it. Look at those two ideas. Conform. Does this conform me more, or does this transform and renew my mind more? In our next study, we're going to start looking at how to deal with problems that are not the result of our own choices. Is there a way to bring about a good, purifying purpose of God in the middle of difficult situations that we just can't control? That's what I want to look at next time. Let's pray together.